Welcome to We Go There. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... But hey, we go there. Because there's no such thing as having too much information when it comes to your health and wellness. We dive deep into topics, interview experts, and get answers you need. Because knowledge is power. And feeling empowered is what we're all about. So let's go there. I'm so excited to be here sitting with Anthony Lowe all the way in Australia. So it's 2 p.m. over here in Toronto. It's 6 a.m. We we managed to schedule this. So it's a really morning for you in, in Sydney, Australia. This is going to be a really awesome conversation. Thank you for being here, Anthony. Always happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Nikki. Uh, it's going to be great. And I just want to give a little bit of context for anyone who is wondering who is Anthony Lowe? What is he all about? What are we talking about today? So I will kind of just give a brief overview and I'd love you to expand. So Anthony Lowe is a physiotherapist from Australia. He runs the Physio Detective. And the one thing I love about Anthony Lowe, and I'm just going to go off the cuff here, is that you're not afraid to challenge status quo. You are a bit of someone I, I see as um, definitely, obviously, a thought leader in this space, but but also you're sort of like you like to facilitate productive discourse, and that's how this podcast episode came to be. So there was a post that you know was a bit controversial that I shared, and you know you were sort of like don't agree, and I was like okay, instead of going back and forth in comments, let's have you on the podcast, and you were like I'm into it, and I'm like great, so that's that's why we're here. But prior to that. I've always wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about what you're so passionate about, which is women's health. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I generally don't try to go on pages where I may disagree with something. I, I realized I used to, and then people would just attack me back. And it's like, really? I'm trying to talk about ideas here, not people. But, um, you know, it often got personal. So I just stick to my own thing and put the stuff out, but sometimes people send me stuff and they're upset. And, um, and so, you know, I, I just raise my voice every now and then and, um, try to be respectful. And, um, yeah, I, I was super surprised, um, because you reached out and it was, it was, um, collaborative, which I really appreciated because I do think that everybody's just trying to help, mm-hmm. um, in help, explain what we see is helpful for people and trying to do the best with the information that we have. So I really do like sharing what I've learned over the years. And I was that person. I certainly don't claim to be perfect by no means. And the reason why I teach is because um, it's the best way of remembering things. So very much a learner, very much a, you know, somebody who likes to get nerdy and think about things, but also very passionate about getting the the correct information out there for people because I think it's important. I think the reasons why we we explain things to people is very important to be as close to the truth as possible. Um, I don't think there's much absolute truth going on, but certainly being more right than we currently are is important. So yeah, that's what I like. That's what I'm passionate about. And women's health, certainly I work in sports performance. I work with chronic pain and persistent pain and just your usual normal 
acute aches and pains and injuries. I love that sort of stuff. So I, I managed to mix it all in and work at the junction of all of those things, um, you know, having done antenatal, postnatal for my whole career, really. So coming up on 26 years, um, as well as all the other stuff, you know, having been a competitive athlete, as well as, um, you know, having had or still have pain and, and all sorts of stuff. So I think it just all of those life experiences make me a better therapist. Oh, for sure. And I think it's, it's you're in a way unique in the sense that you are a man in women's health. And I'm just, I don't know if this has been brought up before, but you deal with, you know, prolapse, diastasis, you know, incontinence, all of these issues. And by and large, this is dominated in terms of the physiotherapists who, who practice by women. And you are not only a man, but you're also a thought leader as a man. So I think that has also been interesting. And I want to kind of just briefly dive into that because I was thinking about this before our conversation. I've been anticipating this conversation and I, I kind of see it as in a way you're able to be perhaps less biased because for people who have given birth like myself, I have a bias towards the, what has worked for me and my own rehab. And if you haven't experienced it, you're potentially more open to a variety of ways and you don't kind of lead with, well, it worked for me, so it should work for you. Absolutely. And I'm always very, very careful. I am a feminist. I do not pretend to tell people what to do with their bodies. And in fact, it gets awkward when I have to point out to feminists that they're telling people what they can and can't do with their own body, um, which again, is awkward coming from a guy, right? Um, <laughs> so, you know, reminding people that it's their body and it's their choice and, you know, if they choose to do things this way, that's still their choice. Um, it, you know, let's let's not uh, shame them for making those decisions. So I am careful, but um, I don't think it gives me objectivity necessarily. I think it makes it easier to overcome my biases because I haven't, I've only watched births and participated that way, not actually felt it inside my body. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I think it's both a blessing and a curse because um, I can't share the same experiences that other people have had. And yet I can share it from a different perspective, always with a questioning and curious mind, certainly not a this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, I will get a little bit strident sometimes because some things are just like a certain way, you know, like if you told me that you gave birth out through your mouth, I'm going <laughs> to tell you that 99.99% disagreeing. Maybe it's possible one day, but it's probably not happening. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I want to share a story um, that I read on one of your blogs that I thought was really interesting about an acronym that you use called SCAR. And I thought this was a powerful way to sort of set the stage so people who are, are new to you could kind of understand. And I love that you were so humble in that you were like, I have made mistakes with my own clients. So you were describing, and tell me if I'm wrong in paraphrasing here, but you had a client who was in her teens and she had a J-Lo booty, and I'm using air quotes. She had a big booty and you were at, you wanted her to do like a five degree correction of an anterior pelvic tilt, like a slight pelvic tilt to reduce the lower back curve. And then didn't she come back just a few years later and she had like no booty. So she had been overcorrecting and probably being hypervigilant about this, but sort of in your brain, it was like just this tiny little thing, but she, she really ruminated on it 
and took it too far and it had a huge impact on her in not a great way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it really, um, it highlights just how important words are. And, and for me, it was, it was hardly anything. Like it was so inconsequential, the kind of thing that we all do every day when we tell people, Oh, you know, just like, it was the smallest change mm -hmm. in her posture, but she chased the feeling. That's why I tend to say when I teach now, don't chase the feeling. Right. So she chased the feeling of the correction to know that she was doing it correctly. And that's why she kept going way too far than what I was anticipating. Uh, she completely took out her lordosis. She had this completely posteriorly pelvic tilted posture. Mm -hmm. And I had to double check twice that she was the same person because she looked completely differently. And, you know, same height, same weight. She was 18 the first time. I was like, what have you done to your posture? And she goes, well, I did what you said. Oh, no. And like... Let's face it, how many teenagers follow through on the one thing that somebody said to them once, right? And it just highlighted to me, number one, that words really do matter. Even if we think and our intention is good and short term, unless we communicate clearly to people exactly what we mean, there are people that will take it out of context or just run with what it literally means to them if we don't put enough around it. And number two, it's so important to say to people, this is not forever. It's just for now. Yeah. Like if I found that once I started saying that it's not forever, just for now, it helped people realize that it's, it doesn't have to be like this forever. And, and when, look, I've done antenatal postnatal for 25 years. It feels like forever when you're in the trenches, you've just had a baby, you're sleep deprived. Yeah. You feel like you're a feeding machine for a baby that doesn't really interact with you very much. You might get an occasional burp smile, but, <laughs> you know, until they get to have some character, um, it's really tough. And, um, yeah, that's why they make them so cute when they first come well, out. Well, you have three of them, just people who I don't do. know. <laughs> well, 20, 19, and 16 and a half at the moment. So, yeah, um, I still remember them, though, as, as little babies. And so, you know, um it feels like it's going to be forever. And now we're looking down the barrel of, you know, people moving out and finishing school and all sorts of things. It's like, that went really fast. So um, it's not forever, just for now. And words really do matter. So the concept of SCAR being assuming that people are strong, capable, adaptable and resilient, not that they're weak and incapable and you know, doomed to failure. Some people come in and they tell me, oh, you know, it's it's just going to be like this forever now. And it's like, really? You're 31. Like, no, you can train your way out of this it, one, it feel, you know? It can feel that way, though. As mm. someone especially who has experienced cystocele myself, it was minor for those of you who are listening and like, what the heck are you talking about? Bladder prolapse, bronchitis and pregnancy. You know, you're like, I just freaking blew out my pelvic floor second baby, 38 years old on the older side. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know, you, you catastrophize it. Right. And it's this feeling of, and I know this is something that a lot of people come to you and you have interviewed people who have had much more severe prolapse and who have been told they need surgery and they're dealing with pessaries and all of these things. And it's having gone through that experience myself, I now, and putting it out there for the internet to see, I now get people saying, oh my gosh, like I'm broken. You know, they're very anxious. And of course you can then develop this pathologizing, 
you're feared, this if you're vulnerable, you're weak. And this is the same with diastasis as well, right? And now all of a sudden, you know, and so maybe I would love to dive into the psychology behind that because I think that is a big one because we don't, and this is something I struggle with, we don't want to tell people, you know, you're broken, right? We want to avoid the fear, reduce the fear, but we also need to make sure they're not overloading their tissues too soon or inappropriately in the healing period. So like, that's a fine line to, to walk, I find. I think it's a very fine line. And if we come back to that patriarchal type of system that we work in, it's easier to say, do this, don't do that. Um, and it's very marketing, you know, create a problem, provide a solution. Um, but really it, it, it robs people of empowerment, of choice and the decision to do what they want. So um, if we go back to the SCAR principle, for example, um, just assuming that people are strong, capable, adaptable, and resilient, and then spending our time, instead of um, doing an assessment to find out what is wrong, also, because that's important to do, that's my job, um, also come with a view of pointing out all the things that are going right, mm -hmm. because it's difficult, especially in the heat of the moment of sleep deprivation and and all the rest of it, so many life stresses for, for young mums, um, young parents, but especially young mums, because let's face it, us dudes don't do enough to, to help out. Um, you know, the, the mental load and the physical load is, is relatively high. So um, pointing out all the things that are going right. You know, I always laugh when people are told that, oh, you can't progress from leg slides and bent knee fallouts until you master this. Mm -hmm. uh, isolated contraction and then being able to dissociate uh, before we progress you in your exercise. And I think, yeah, it's but boring. I asked them what they did that day. Well, it's not just boring. <laughs> they got up, they ran around like maniacs, getting everybody out of the house, mm -hmm. um, ran around dropping kids off and doing whatever they need to do before they came to your appointment or your class where they're told that they, they're not good enough to progress past a certain level because they haven't mastered this thing yet. And tut, 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 you haven't done your exercises. So this is all on you while you're still here. And then they do their one hour class or whatever, get up, run around like a maniac, getting everything ready, picking all the kids back up. And do you know what I mean? Like what they're doing in real life is so much more yeah. uh, than what we're giving them credit for oh in- God, yeah an exercise where it's barely registering on the brain meter in terms of effort, but, you know, we, we're using it as a stick to, pe to beat people down and tell them that they're not good enough before they can move on and then have them get up and run around, like do stuff. That just does not make sense to me whatsoever. And that sort of thing really fires me up because it's like, how can you say to somebody that they're not good enough and they're walked in? If they came in on a stretcher and and that's the only thing they could do is barely struggle to slide their leg up and down the bed. Okay, fine. I totally get it. And it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. But wow, if they if they walked into your clinic, why are we telling people that lying down mm -hmm. and not mastering a party trick, isolated exercises are party tricks, um, you know, I, I really think we have to rethink their attitude to that. Yeah, it's it's very true. I mean, gosh, car seats alone, when you think about the weight of the baby in the car seat, that's like a 40-pound mm -hmm. kettlebell. 
Mm-hmm. You're swinging around, right? Well, and you can't even carry it. Like, let's face it, most people aren't built like me, six foot two and really heavy and strong. Um, you know, you can't even carry those things at my height and size. You can't even carry it in an effective way that does not generate tons of pressure. Like, it's just not possible. And then you take somebody who's five foot four and 115 pounds ringing wet, like, it's, you know, it's it's like a quarter, it's a half of their body weight type stuff, you know, a third of their body weight. Yeah, it's heavy lifting. And why aren't we training people to do that? I, I train newly postpartum mums as soon as possible to bend over and pick up 35 pounds from the ground um, up to chest height. And the reason why is because lots of people drive SUVs and their stroller, their pram, I don't know what you call it in Canada, like you've got to bend over and pick that sucker up and put it in the back of an SUV. Yeah. And if if you don't have somebody doing that for you, um, you know, quite often some people are literally within a week or two doing that on their own yeah. because they've got to go out and get food. They've got to, you know, they're a single parent. Um, there's many situations where people are lifting 35 pounds two weeks postpartum and we're saying don't lift excuse me, don't lift more than more than 10 pounds. Like yeah. what? How does that work? Yeah, you make so many good points. And this is where I also get the whole, and this drives me crazy when it's the, um, this, is, this has become like a therapy session for you and I. What drives you crazy, Anthony? But but the whole, oh, you know, I've got to wait for my six-week clearance. I'm like, what the, what the hell do you think they're going to do at your six-week clearance? And I say air quotes, like you're getting to get a script for birth control you're not really going to have a proper pelvic exam, at least at least where I am and many of my students in the U.S. And it's this idea that I'll be doing nothing for six weeks. I'll be magically cleared and then I'll go for a run to get my body back. Right. Like these. And yeah. we've talked about this before. So so what what do we do about it, in your opinion? Well, I think the first step is, number one, recognize the system that we're in. Number two, work with within that system because it's not going to change overnight. Number three, start by not only empowering people who are the clients in the situation um, to speak up and advocate and ask questions and seek help elsewhere. I know that sometimes people are just in a town where that is the only provider, that is the only person, um, which is why, you know, online consults like what I do and what other people do is really helpful for people. But um but also empowering the practitioners, the healthcare professionals, the Pilates instructors, the fitness professionals, the coaches, to be able to to have good information that's accurate and scientific um, to to help these people because there's so much you can do. The earliest that I've seen somebody postpartum is on the day, on the day. I've seen people on their way home from the hospital, and I've seen people years later, haven't seen anybody, and now they're seeing me. Um, and, you know, it, it just, it is what it is. We have to work in the system. But if we can just start with SCAR, and I'm so glad that you brought it up. If we can start with SCAR, ask yourself, do I think this person is strong, capable, adaptable, resilient? And am I showing them that? Am I asking them? Mm-hmm. Am I helping you feel strong, capable, adaptable, and resilient? And then for the person who is the client, ask yourself, it, does my provider make me feel stronger or weaker? 
Does my, does my provider make me feel capable or incapable? Does my provider make me feel adaptable or like, you know, I'm doomed, I, I'm not able to progress? Um, or, and does my provider make me feel like I'm resilient or makes me feel like I'm fragile? If I do the slightest wrong thing the wrong way, I'm going to break. If your provider, be it a health or a fitness provider, is doing that, you need to let them know. And if they take it badly, you need to fire them and find somebody else because that's the only way that it's going to work in a capitalist society. You just affect people's bottom line and things will change. Um, and it's so sad that it has to be that way. I would love for it to be based on ideals, but I'm also realistic. And um, yeah, just fire people. Just say, look, I don't, I don't have to accept that from you because there are empowering people out there. And it is a lot better than it was 10 years ago. Um, and I, I continue to work hard to inspire and spread this message. Um, you know, I got up at 4.45 in the morning to be on this podcast to make sure that I was ready. So, you know, I this is what I love doing to, to help change the world, to be a world that I want to live in and be a part of. I love the ideals. You have you have many of them and I know you're very you stay true to them. And and that's that's evident in all that you do for sure. Um one of the things, I mean, there's so much for us to talk about here, but you made a comment. I, I did get your webinar. I was watching it um close just before this call. And it was interesting your comment regarding the aesthetic goals and how that plays into diastasis, 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 tomato, tomato. But it's you know, you made the comment saying that, you know, it, it's easier to sort of talk about things like surgery from the context of I'm going to get abdominoplasty because I have back pain and, you know, all these things. And it's really like kind of showing that it's, it's going to really impact your life versus just saying, yeah, I don't like the way my tummy looks. It's almost like we don't want to admit that. So, I mean, I think plenty of people that I know do admit it, but probably if I were to venture a guess, the majority of people would prefer to think of it as more of a, you know, a necessary thing to improve function then. So I guess what, what is your, what is your thought on having abdominoplasty to improve function versus just about aesthetics? Yeah. Uh, number one, whatever reason people want to have an abdominoplasty is up to them and if they've made the decision or they've made the decision in the past i support it like you're doing the best for you so that's number one i won't shame people for having one no matter what the reason um even if it's erroneous like okay fine um because it has the same result i i want to talk about the reasons why not attack people for making sure. a decision um can people return to function without an abdominoplasty? Absolutely, yes. Um, can people return to function with an abdominoplasty? Absolutely, yes. Um, if you follow most guidelines, most of the time, just because of the way that our Western society is set up, along with the fact that, um, you know, you can't do much in the in the days and the weeks and the years uh, in the days and weeks afterwards um, for a month or two. It's just hard to pick stuff up. Uh, it's hard to even get standing straight, you know. So you need a lot of help, and most of the time they recommend that your your youngest 
use two or three before you consider doing an abdominoplasty just so that they can be walking, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so if you're going to wait those two or three years, at least get strong, at least get strong and functional and show yourself that you can do this. I've seen people with abdominoplasties that still have the same back pain that they had. And they were told that this, this is the thing that's going to solve their back pain because their core is not intact and all this other stuff, which I don't think is true. Um, and we can talk about the theory why, um, but also that I've seen people greatly benefit from it and accelerate back to their goals as well. So I'm not against having an abdominoplasty. I think that it's such a sad situation that in today's society, still, if you go to a party and somebody asks you, what are you doing next week? Um, Oh, I'm going in for an operation because, you know, my back, I I don't want to have pelvic organ prolapse in the future. That's what, that's what the physio said. And, and so then, um, you know, I, I have to have this operation to, to take care of my core. Like, it's just, it's people are just going to be really sympathetic towards you and oh yeah you know such a big step you're taking care of yourself um whereas if you said look you know i can do everything i want to do now i I just don't like the questions i don't like how it looks that you know I, i still look a bit pregnant or i still look a lot pregnant so i'm having a tummy tuck to to sort that out like you know there's there's going to be some silent judging going on i suspect you know mm, she's so vain um, and I just think that it's so sad that it has to happen that way because it's still it's still a reason that is valid. It is their body and it's their choice. And if that's what we believe, then that still applies when it's something we disagree with, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's I don't think it's necessary for the vast majority of people. And it is I will still support it if that's what you choose to do. Yeah, I mean, and obviously there's the difference with herniated tissue and hernia repair versus. Oh yeah, we're talking about diastasis. Yeah, we're not talking. Yeah, hernia, we're, just we're not talking hernias. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and even with a hernia, like lots of people live with a large ventral hernia. It's not like it's not a medical emergency unless it gets entrapped, and mm-hmm. um, you know. But yeah, it's still a thing, and um, like I mean, I literally saw somebody two days ago um who um who who had an an abdominoplasty she's going really really well and it has not made any difference to her pelvic floor issues whatsoever and i i didn't i didn't tell her that it would we knew that it probably wouldn't i'd be interested to see if it did help but it hasn't helped um she needs a separate surgery for that but she had three ventral hernias So she had one below the belly button. So the split of the linear alba through there, uh, literally a a hole, a hernia there, and two above the belly button. So she had three hernias. um, And and so she did uh, need that abdominoplasty um, for those reasons. Um, It wasn't about the the cosmetic appearance of it at all. Yeah. And, and, Honestly, if you have a cosmetic reason, there's nothing wrong with that. Like you said, right? Like, do you, there's nothing wrong with that. But we just don't want to be lying to people saying, oh, go get the surgery. Your back pain is going to go away. It's not necessarily. Or that it's necessary for 
yeah. for, you know, back stability reasons. It's right. like, well, I've got people doing more than they've ever done before and their back pain's improving. And it's probably because they're stronger and moving in all directions mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, what they were doing before. This episode of the We Go There podcast is brought to you by The Bell Method, a fitness company that blends Pilates with pelvic health, creating choreography from science. You might feel overwhelmed at all the abs after baby programs promising to make you bounce back after birth, or maybe you're feeling unsure of how to exercise in pregnancy and prepare your body for delivery. It can be tough to navigate what information is credible and evidence-based. Women deserve better. I created all of our programs with the guidance of pelvic health physiotherapists, and we continue to evolve our programming to stay current with the latest research. At The Bell Method, we ditch guilt and bring balance to our bodies with programs designed to fit your life stage. We'll help you reduce incontinence, diastasis recti, and prolapse, so you feel strong, confident, and empowered throughout pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond. I invite you to enjoy 10% off your first class session with the code WEGOTHERE10. Visit www.thebellmethod.com for more. And so it's I was that person too. I was definitely that person too. I just want you to know. And I am Pilates trained. I just ran my course on the weekend just past mm-hmm. um, the Pilates version of the female athlete for the first time. And it was really, really fun awesome. to just, yeah, use the equipment and show people just something different. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. It's, it is a, it's a powerful mode of training. It all is. I think cross training is the best doing a whole different varieties of movement, but I guess I want to get into, there's so much I want to get into have my notes here, but, um, the neural system and the brain and the impact that it has on diastasis. And so one of the things I will mention here as like a way of teeing you up <laughs> is that there can be often a scenario I have observed with students who have unplanned cesarean births, who have scar trauma, they have scar adhesions, they have this dissociation because they didn't have the birth experience they had hoped for, and this can impact their recovery. And I would love your thoughts on what could be some of the reasons, because I'm sure there are a multitude, that a cesarean birth, for example, might make diastasis recovery a little bit harder. You know, obviously there's the scar tissue, but the impact of the specifically of the trauma, and this can obviously happen with the vaginal birth as well, but I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. So number one, it's very easy to separate the physical and the psychological from the sociological. So, um, and, you know, we tend to like to compartmentalize things, but um, I think an experience affects the physical, the psychological and the sociological, how we interact with other people um, and, and how we grew up. I think all of that just melds in. So that's number one. So in the broader context of what I'm about to say, I consider all of them indistinguishable. Um, that's number one. I wrote a blog about pancakes and um, and omelets, which kind of explains this a bit more. That's number one. So with respect to experiencing something, particularly if it's not what you're expecting, um, there can be definitely things. I'm thinking of two people straight away. One, one um, off the bat, you know, there's a, there's a fit pro who lives in Toronto who, who I discovered on the course uh, 
has trauma associated with that cesarean scar. And as soon as I got close to it, I felt a physical reaction to that. And we were looking at her diastasis, not to do with her cesarean scar. And boom, in that instant, I had to change what I was doing and address that because she was concerned about a diastasis, but like she didn't realize that she was concerned about other things. And it, uh, it took her a while, 18 months to, to realize the full impact of it. And when she did something about that, things really changed for her. And there was somebody else that I saw online who saw me because the scar was so painful for her, but uh, uncovering all of that led to a 20 plus year history of uh, increased sensitivity in her nervous system, which people hadn't joined the dots. So um, once I'd, I'd helped figure that out, um, it that became a lot easier for her. So with respect to having a cesarean or an unplanned event occur during your, your uh, birth, um, certainly trauma can occur. Um, and it's both physical and psychological. And because they're linked, one will affect the other almost in, you can't tell which one came first. Um, we, we try to make stories up about why, but it doesn't. From a physical point of view, because I'm a physical therapist, one of the best ways that I love working with a cesarean scar is to load it. So in CrossFit, we use a GHD machine, uh, which is basically uh, a heavy ladder barrel in Pilates world. Um, so I love extending people over into extension and having them do sit-ups and crunches and leg lifts and really loading the tissue in a, uh, a healing appropriate way. So we're not doing those things at even six weeks uh, afterwards, but certainly loading the tissue so that it knows what we want it to do. I've seen people that have had scar work for like years and they, they come and do six weeks of some exercise and they're like, my scar has never been this good. And it's like, well, even though I'm a big, strong dude, I could hurt people physically if I really wanted to. I still can't put enough pressure through your tissues to, to tension and stretch them and, and get them to adapt the same that you could through your own muscles and your body weight. Um, so why not use exercise? Because you don't have to come see me for that. That's a lot cheaper if you just go do some exercise at home. And if you want to come and have me supervise, I'm happy to take your money that way. Um, <laughs> I Like we live in a capitalist society. If you'd rather somebody help you through that, I am here to support you, but I'm not going to tell you you need to come and see me so, um, for that. Okay. So I think loading the tissue helps. I think the psychological aspect of it is um dealt with because we know exercise has positive psychological benefits you add that to the fact that i try to think of scar all the time mm -hmm. showing people how they're strong capable mm -hmm. adaptable and resilient is really important in those ones because a lot of people feel like their body has let them down that they sure. did something wrong to lead to this situation and like sometimes it just is what it is um, very rarely are people seeking to go hurt themselves <laughs> during labor to, to, or pregnancy to, to cause something to happen. Um, so, you know, 
being able to show them that, hey, your body, your body adapted positively to this situation. You have a diastasis and, you know, it looks like the pressure being able to be distributed anteriorly through your tummy instead of down through the pelvic floor um, seems to be a helpful thing. You know, we've got hints, hints in the research that having a diastasis you know, some people had less, when I say some people, like 300 people or whatever it was in the study had less incidence of pelvic organ prolapse than those without a diastasis. That's you so know, interesting is... that you say that because mm-hmm. again, no diastasis for me really, but I had coughing. People, how did you not get bad diastasis from all the coughing in your pregnancy? I'm like, well, it came, had to come out one way and it came out the pelvic floor and not my abs. <laughs> yeah. And it's not because you're strong in your abs or had a strong core or a chero Pilates instructor. We can't pick it. We can't pick it. So you don't um, think that's I think, why? Because I was going to give myself that no, now. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I've seen really strong people develop a diastasis and I've seen really weak people not develop a diastasis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like, mm, okay, I guess it's not that. Genetic it would be stuff. a nice story, yeah. but I don't think it's that. Um, okay, what about scar tissue as this in the cesarean? Let's just go back and then mm. we'll move on to a new topic. But having more diastasis, below the navel Mm -hmm. in the lower part as a result of mismanaged pressure because of the tight scar. So if you have, and this is a theory I've been chatting with about, you know, in the past. Um, And I'd love your thoughts on that because so for anyone who's just following along, uh, the idea would be, and we know you can have a very tight scar, right? After a cesarean, and hopefully we can work on that and we can, and we know we can, but is there a possibility that the tension from that C-section scar could make it harder to distribute pressure evenly in the abdominal canister? And then you're going to get a little bit more pressure both above, just above, and then just below. And so that can cause a bit of displacement of pressure in a way that could make DR a little bit more challenging to recover from. Okay. So which scar are we talking about for the cesarean? Because there's seven layers that go through. Yeah, the whole thing. Because there's we're talking about the internal on the uterus as well as more of the fascial layer and skin. Cool. Okay. So, yeah, look, um, you know, if you have a canister and um, there are more rigid sections in the canister than, than others, then, yeah, like it pressure will go to other places. Uh, Do I see that as a big defining factor? No, I don't. Um, But I think also I don't not load that area. I, I, you know, lots of people would do things like visceral mobilization Mm -hmm. and they'll do scar work and, and manual therapy for scars. I used to do that stuff too, but I found it was just faster and easier to have people move in 3D um, and I just got better results that way. So I stopped doing a lot of that stuff. Um, uh, you know, and it was interesting. I think even there's some research to indicate that vitamin E can make your, your scar worse. Um, and yet that was a thing. Yeah, I know. So I have to go look um, to be 100% sure. But I, I was like, oh, okay. Because, mm. um, you know, we used to tell people vitamin E cream and vitamin yeah. E oils and I, stuff. Well, so. 
yeah, emu oil and bio oil. <laughs> there's so much, but there's such a movement now towards this, like getting the scar massaged as soon as the external stitches have healed and starting early. Yeah. As soon as she's, like people, colleagues nah. of mine who do courses on this. Yeah, I know. It's look, part of the problem with biases is that if you've just paid money to do a course, it becomes important to justify why you did that course. And so when I go do a course these days, I go to learn. I don't necessarily need to do the thing to justify the course. And if I take that mindset in, it's a better learning experience for me because I found, particularly if you have to certify, uh, like pay to remain certified, um, you tend to want to um, justify why you paid this money. I, I spoke to a chiropractor friend of mine once and he was using a particular technique. And um, I said, why do you keep using this technique on people? Because like mm. you and I both know, like we're, we're very similar in, in our mindset in a lot of ways, but he was using this particular technique on people. And I'm like, why? Why don't you just get them to do this thing, which we both know works well. And he said, oh, you know, it's because I have to pay every year for this thing and I've got to do, you know, the different types of courses and stay certified in it. So I figured that like, you know, I should use it. And so that is the worst reason why you should use a treatment technique because you paid money to, to remain certified in it. Like that to me is putting the technique over the person. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't think visceral manipulation is necessary. It feels nice. And if people like it and they want to do that, that's cool. But I think what it is is an interaction in the nervous system. Yeah. And you can have that interaction without the physical touch. Um, if you there are just some people that don't like to be touched. Um, so there's a whole bunch of people suffering, mm -hmm. having people work on them gently. Visceral manipulation is very gentle. That don't like being touched. And the people who love being touched, they're the people on the testimonials. Oh, it felt so wonderful. I could feel it release inside of me. Mm -hmm. I love this, you know, because they love that. And mm -hmm. that's okay. But it's not necessary. Um, if you move in 3D, we know that exercise is really good at moving the visceral pump, right? So all your internal organs up and down and in 3D. So if you're moving in 3D, your organs will move in 3D. And so the scar tissue will heal in 3D. So it's possible so, that it could work for some people back to the scar massage. I'm oh, 100%. So it's not to say, so I don't want people to listen to this and go, oh, well, there's, I shouldn't bother. It might really help you, but you're saying Maybe. it doesn't necessarily help everybody. Not only that, but it may be helping you for different reasons to what people tell you, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes it's just because you like it. And it is okay for that to be the reason, not because I'm breaking up the cross linkages and things like that. Um, you know, all of that stuff I think is, is uh, well, I'd say that it's on dubious scientific footing, um, that sort of stuff. So if you like it, the most plausible reason that I've seen out there is that you have a positive effect on the neural system and my neural system connects positively with your neural system through touch. And it's a positive experience, which leads to positive adaptation, uh, which is fantastic. And there's nothing wrong with getting massages. There's nothing wrong with using uh, different 
different mediums, so, uh, you know, creams or oils or whatever, we try to stay as scientifically current as we can on what's in them. Mm-hmm. But just olive oil is going to be no problem, you know. Um, and then, um, you know, yeah, it's really important, I think, to be able to touch and reconnect yeah. to your abdomen, to your perineum, um, just in a sometimes the brain needs extra yeah. help with that. Yeah. Um, so 100%, I have no problems with people feeling their scar, massaging their scar, or having a therapist do that, be it in the perineal area or on the abdomen. But I don't think it's essential. Okay. Um, there's lots of people who haven't had it and are totally fine from it. Yeah. Now that's it's interesting. And I think what you're kind of getting at here is, is with the neural system is that things can work, but sometimes for reasons other than what you think. So if you're saying it's not actually reducing scar adhesions, but perhaps it's reducing a protective response, a guarding response in somebody, if all of a sudden they're no longer, they can tolerate touch in their scar, they can tolerate, you know, it becomes less sensitized. And that then gives them more of a feeling of empowerment when they approach exercise. Yeah, if you if you feel better, for having that treatment provided by whomever, mm-hmm. um, then yeah, that's great. I've taught in inverted commas um, uh, visceral manipulation to partners before. They're not grabbing anybody's organ. They're just <laughs> using a gentle, caring yeah. touch mm-hmm. that I've taught them how to feel. So, uh, you know, I translate it. We, we, we talk about the drawer and, and where things move and how that works. And I've just told them, like, to put your hands on and move in different directions. And the easiest direction it goes to, go over that way and just hold it for a while. They're not grabbing any organs. Right. And they get the same effects. They go, yeah, I know it works because it feels the same as when other people do it. It's like, cool, you know. And how can that be when I can take somebody who's untrained spend five minutes showing them how to do it. Dude, literally, usually a dude, right? Usually just puts their hands on there going, how long do I have to do this for? And then the person feels better. And so interesting. So this is, <laughs> this is, I, I love these conversations. So I do not, I am not someone who teaches courses on scar massage, oh. but I can see where people would get pissed off at you. Who do oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, is that they always point to the results, but it works. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, I never said it doesn't work. Uh-huh. I'm telling you that it probably works for different reasons. Okay. All right. Let's 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 move on to something that um, is a bit, I don't know if you've spoken about this on a podcast before, but the impact of gestational diabetes as a risk factor for diastasis recti. Yeah. Because I, I, this is this is research, so people don't know that there has been shown that it, that if you have gestational diabetes in pregnancy, it is considered to be a risk factor for developing more severe diastasis recti. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's early days. I think it's important to to collect this information. All pregnancy research tends to be correlative, not causative. So we'll we will never go and give somebody gestational diabetes to see what happens to their diastasis. Like that would be unethical. And I do not support that. Just want to be really clear. Uh, But um, yeah, yeah, of course. But then, okay. What are the reasons why? 
Is it because of the size of the baby? Is it to do with the genetics of things? Is it to do with the biochemistry, the blood flow? Like, we still don't know why. We just know that it's associated with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what do we do with people with gestational diabetes? Usually the traditional approach is we modify their diet, we try to iron out their blood sugar, and we encourage them to exercise, which is kind of what we do anyway with most people, right? Like you see somebody as a client, like as a coach, you would look at their diet, you would look at their activity, and you would make sure that any medical issues were managed. Like to me, the management is still the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what does the knowledge advance for us in terms of assessment and management? I think being aware of it and for those of us who, who want to see what's going on there. Um, I think that's important. But also I know that at least in Australia, and I'm I'm not sure about Canada, but I'm I'm assuming so, gestational diabetes is one of the things that medical professionals look out for. Yeah. Um, So unless you're remote or you don't have any medical care in your life, um, being able to say to people, okay, be sure to look out for these things. But apart from that, like, what are we going to do with that information? How does it change yeah. things? I guess it uh, more, how can I, you and I, as physios and Pilates instructors, how can we change what that means for people? Yeah. You know, I've seen the healthiest people get gestational diabetes and yeah. the unhealthiest people not develop it. Totally. And I mean, like, I failed my first more. gestational diabetes test and I'm I would consider myself to be a fairly healthy individual, but Mm -hmm. so this is important, right? No shame, no guilt associated with that. But Mm -hmm. I'm curious about potential inflammation. Does it impact collagen fibers? Like, and I don't think we have that information yet, but I guess I'm curious about this whole concept of collagen. Like one of the things I say, and it's just because we know it's not going to hurt. It's like, go put some collagen in your coffee or your smoothie or increase your vitamin C to improve collagen synthesis postpartum. Like just, it's not going to hurt you, right? Like feed yourself, nourish yourself. Is it going to actually make it to the linea alba? I don't know, but it's not going to hurt. Yeah. Um, I, I, am I allowed to mention my podcast? Um, of course you are. And I hope you're (laughs) going to invite me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the women's health podcast is we, we did, uh, an interview with Lily Nichols. She's great. Yes. Literally wrote the book on this stuff. Um, and yeah, you know, having the ingredients in there that allows for the best opportunity because, you know, depletion of certain ingredients in your system, those ingredients need to be there for your body to synthesize it. So having collagen in, it will get broken up before it goes out into its constituent parts, right? And then it can be reassembled by the body. But at least the ingredients are there. Mm-hmm. It's like asking you to make a cake without the necessary ingredients in the pantry. It's hard to make a cake if you don't have the ingredients. Sure. Um So I think from that point of view, still a general healthy nutritional diet, um, you know, is important. Um, And again, like I said, it it doesn't necessarily change things. You'd be getting enough vitamin C if you 
had lots of leafy green vegetables for bioavailability, you know, having your piece of fruit a day and those sorts of things, you know, but having somebody overlook that, like look over it and make sure that for you, these things are going well. And there are blood tests to show how things are going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being able to do that is is important. And it still comes down to the very general advice of, yeah, we're, we're taking care of you from the inside out as well. So making sure what goes in is is healthy for you and helpful for you. This is a um, good segue to talk inside out because I wanted to to also talk about this concept of transverse activation over rectus. Mm. And, yes. You know, and so you know, noticing that when you look on an you know ultrasound, that obviously the muscles are going to be pulled in different directions depending on if you're firing transversus, which is the deepest layer. Again, I'm explaining this for people who are listening rectus which is the sort of six-pack muscle and then what if you do tva and then a curl-up task so trying to activate the whole abdominal wall together Mm -hmm. so you had mentioned a comment when we chatted beforehand you said i want to talk about transversus and how the cues that we're taught are not always sort of on point and and i'd love this because as a pilates instructor i am all about cues for movement that's like our forte right being able to explain mm-hmm. movement with words so tell absolutely. me absolutely yeah look um so first of all with the activation and transversus number one it is a party trick you do not need to know how to isolate it to be considered normal um and if you ever fe- felt if you're ever made to feel like you're not good enough or not normal because you can't isolate it, don't worry. Lots of people can't isolate it. And lots of people who tell me they can isolate it, I pop the ultrasound on them and they can't isolate it. And then they kind of like lose their identity a bit, but with lots of reassurance, we get them back. Um, so that's number one. Number two, lots of people are taught to feel one centimeter in, one centimeter down from the ASIS, the hip pointer bones, where to feel it. And then they're taught to contract their pelvic floor or their transversus or to do an abdominal drawing maneuver, pull the belly button to the spine. And when you feel that muscle pop up in there, that's your transverse activation. And that is far, that is as far from the truth as you can get because that's going to be your obliques. That is your obliques firing. And I have a video that I literally made just in case you wanted to see it. And I know that people listening can't see it. Uh, but I will publish it um, and it will get out there. But when transversus activates, it holds its position and it bulges downwards. So when you do a bicep contraction mm-hmm. and your hand is in front of your elbow um, and you contract your biceps, your biceps will shorten and push forwards, right? Um, and everybody knows that. So when you contract it, it bulges forwards. When you hold it up in the typical uh, bicep flex position, it will bulge and go towards the ceiling. When you contract your transversus, it will bulge and go towards your spine, towards your insides. It does not bulge towards the outside world. Um, Your internal oblique and your external oblique will. They will go up Mm -hmm. towards the skin. So if anybody is being taught to feel the transversus and um, and it's popping up into their fingers, they've yeah, learned that incorrect. Yeah, that is very incorrect. And yeah. I was taught 
That's what you were transversus taught? never. No, I was taught that transversus never pops up. This is when I first learned about transversus. It never pops up. So I'm talking what, 2001, maybe? It never pops up. And we can see that on ultrasound. It just doesn't go up on an isolated contraction. Um, internal oblique goes up. So, so if you feel any popping, popping up into the fingers not is great. not transversus. Yeah. Yeah, I just did a post about Ninja Turtle abs <laughs> talking about rectus dominance and what happens when you essentially do core exercises without any type of TVA connection and how, you know, it can it can not be what you're looking for, can put downward pressure on the pelvic floor, can leave you with an aesthetic that you're not hoping for. And this isn't to get people, I see your face right now, this isn't to get people to hung up on, oh my God, I don't have my TVA. But it's just to understand that you, there are different muscles in the abdominal wall. We want to train them all together in a perfect scenario. I want them to be sort of able, I want you to be able to fire them all. And you might not be able to isolate them, but hopefully in you know a plank, you're able to connect a plank rotation. You, you're not sort of uh -huh. unable to connect to yeah. you know, certain ones. Do you know what I'm saying? I do know exactly what you're saying because that is the most common thing that I've heard out there and that I got taught and disagreed with. The whole idea is that TVA mm -hmm. is supposed to work and, you know, the whole core stability thing showed that there's a delay mm -hmm. in your transversus abdominis. So if you pull out your phone and put on the stopwatch function and you try to hit that button as fast as you can, 0 0.08 is 80 milliseconds. That is the delay of transversus. And I have to remind people that it's a delay of transversus that we're seeing. 0 0.08 on a phone stopwatch is extremely fast. You can do it, but you have to practice. And that difference is a difference between people with low back pain and no back pain. Literally that fast, the delay. The timing, you're saying the timing of it. So they perform a movement and the T TVA doesn't engage in enough time. 0 0.08 of a second delayed compared to people without back pain. Mm -hmm. It's extremely fast. It's like, it's literally that fast. You wouldn't notice it with the naked eye. Mm -hmm. um, so that's number one. Number two, and this is widely assumed in, I guess, the research circles where people go and study this stuff, transversus works. As soon as you go to move, transversus works. What the core, what the core stability research was looking at was the timing difference and whether that was the difference. And so then we started queuing people for isolated transversus, thinking that we're going to wake it up or, or pre-contract the transversus. This is where the pre-contract the transversus comes in, right? Blow before you go. Pre-contract the transversus. Yeah, all that sort of stuff, right? Julie, we have um, stuff, and you don't like the blow before you go because I say it all the well, time. I don't, I don't have a problem with blow before you go. <laughs> it's just not the only way to do things. Right. Like I, I've, I've had, um, I've seen it a number of times where um, if you breathe in, if you breathe in, you create negative pressure. That is less pressure on your system mm -hmm. than if you exhale 
through the hiss, you know, that type of breathing out, the the classic Pilates hiss. Um, Mm -hmm. Breathing out that way jacks up the pressure. And I'm happy to show you the pictures. Um, It it jacks up the pressure almost to the same as holding your breath. Um, What? mm -hmm. But you're getting rid of air. You're exiting air from your pressure. You're becoming less pressure because you're letting air go. Against a resistance. Oh, because of the hiss. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Right? So it's like, mm, and so people are telling me, oh, no, I'm creating less pressure. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. You find it helpful. I have no problem with that. But it's not because you're creating less pressure. It might be less than holding your breath and bearing down. But like I said, what's wrong with inhale on exertion? You know, anyway, back to transversus. Transversus (laughs) works automatically. As soon as you move a leg or an arm, it's already firing. So when you do a curl up, it fires. In fact, I literally, in preparation for this, I I got my daughter to do an isolated contraction Mm -hmm. and just saw how thick that it was. And then I had her do a crunch, just just a standard crunch. And her transversus got so much thicker and fatter, which indicates a harder contraction mm-hmm. than what she could do isolated, you know? Mm-hmm. Like just doing a crunch will work your transversus. But I like what you said. Just doing your crunch in a certain way may not give you the aesthetic that you're looking for because you're not coordinating your obliques mm-hmm. in the same type of way. And if people are using the pop-up method to check, uh, you know, where you put your fingers in the hip pointer bones oh, and, okay. and you feel the pop-up of transversus, but See, really I've never been taught that. I've never taught that. I was like, what is he talking about? Like, no, it's a drawing in. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's, not it's a out there. Okay. It's out there. Believe me. Um, okay. I've had physios be shocked because they're being taught this. It's like, that is not transversus, it's obliques. Um, But, yeah, so, like, if you put your finger there um, and you can even just try it now, just put your finger there and do a transversus, you should not feel any movement of your fingers inwards or outwards if you do a transversus cue. It should just stay the same, just firm up a little bit. Yeah. It's, It's funny, I did Diane Lee's course in B.C., like back in 2016. And mm-hmm. I remember getting quite frustrated because they were asking everybody to isolate TBA. And here mm-hmm. I am. And it was basically me, the Pilates instructor with chiros and physios. I was probably, I think I was the only fitness professional in that particular course. And she's like, okay. And it was just so subtle. And I'm like, look, if I can't get it, how the hell are my clients going to get this? Like, mm-hmm. this is so you get to be very it can definitely make you slip up and think, oh, well, if I can't get this, then I can't get, you know, and of course I just sort of rolled my eyes and moved on, but like it could definitely mess with somebody's head if they think that, oh, then I can't isolate TVA. So therefore I'm not ready to do X, Y, and Z. And here's the thing. That is sometimes the only thing that people can do that gets them out of their cycle of pain or, or, dysfunction mm-hmm. um i'm always surprised when it happens it's less than one in a hundred i think if i had to guesstimate it 
But sometimes isolated pelvic floor or isolated transversus is the only thing that seems to allow us to move on. But I have a saying, you progress within minutes, not weeks. As soon as they get that, as soon as their brain figures that out in in such a rare person, I think it's extremely rare, um, we're able to move on literally within minutes. And if you think about it, core stability is about having the ability to control every segment of your spine. So if you take somebody who can give you a spinal roll down vertebra by vertebra and a, a roll up or a, a nice cat cow um, with segmental extension and flexion, if they can do a saw with beautiful rotation through the system, like if you can do all of these things, climbing the tree with a with a beautiful segmental flexion and extension on the way up and down, they've got automatic core stability. You, you don't need to teach them things. It's the people with blocking movement that you're trying to teach segmental movement. So teach them segmental movement because segmental motion is, controlled segmental motion is the result of having core stability. Now, if you don't see what you want to see, then try other things. And the very rare person may need to do an isolated contraction for minutes, not weeks and months, to, to be able to learn a different pattern. Lexi here. Okay, so let's shift to another under-the-radar, not-so-hot topic for a minute, body hair. Everyone's got it, but a lot of us want to live smoother. Am I right? Ten years ago, I started Wax On Laser and Wax Bar. Wax On isn't just any waxing and laser hair removal bar. We are the industry leader creating a safe space that inspires people to live confidently in their own skin. Over the years, we've developed trust. Trust that you know you're getting the best quality and comfortable experience every single time. Whatever you come to Wax On for, it's going to be awesome. We've created our own exclusive gold wax formula that's like no other. It's as pain-free and long-lasting as it gets, perfect for all your waxing needs. At WaxOn, we've invested in top-the-line laser technology that's effective on virtually any hair and skin tone for effective results on every body. Seriously. And we carry a carefully curated collection of products. Some we make ourselves, locally I might add, and some are from brands we've fallen in love with that adhere to our values and standards of clean, good for you, and female founded. If you haven't experienced Wax On, I invite you to enjoy 20% off your first service with code WEGOTHERE. Visit waxon.ca or download the mobile app to book in with code WEGOTHERE because there is such a thing as a better hair removal experience to help you live smoother. But yeah, transversus definitely has to go inwards. It should not, you should not feel any sort of muscle flex. Um, and only subtle, like there is a subtle firming that most uh, people can't feel mm-hmm. um, just because they don't have their hands on enough people. I'd say that manual therapists um, may be able to feel it. Mm-hmm. And I've had physios go, I don't even, I can't feel the difference um, because it's super subtle. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we, and this is the thing in this industry that can be, and I say industry meaning fitness, wellness. Mm-hmm core rehab that can feel, I'm sure, very frustrating for people because these things start to change, right? Messaging changes, Mm -hmm. you know, we kind of, we saying, oh, you've got to do this first. You got to do that first. And what I'm hearing from you, having watched your webinar 
is that the hypertrophy of rectus is key. So training, you have to train the six pack muscle. And not that long ago, there were literally articles in the newspaper. And I know the people who wrote them who were saying crunches are the devil's work, <laughs> never do crunches. Your, your prolapse is going to get worse. And so now it's like, we had this whole movement, even at Stop Pilates here in with the headquarters in Toronto of flexion free core classes. So the whole class yeah. would be branded as, oh, it's flexion free because of people who don't want to do flexion because they've heard that it might be bad for their spine or it might be bad for their their core, their diastasis and whatnot. And so now it's sort of like we've moved from that pendulum to all core exercises are good core exercises. It just matters how you do it. But that yes, also leaves some true. people feeling like, well, what the hell? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> Right? Like, give me oh, some yeah. more guidance here, please. Absolutely. I think the key there is how you do it is more important than what you do. I have seen people bear down on isolated transversus and pelvic floor exercises. Mm -hmm. Because you think about it, how did you learn your pelvic floor isolated contraction if you saw a, a pelvic PT, a pelvic physio? She probably had one or two fingers inside to help you squeeze and lift and assess it because that's how they're taught to do it. Mm -hmm. But then you go home and unless you're practicing with your own fingers inside, you mm -hmm. don't have the same kind of feedback. Because I don't know, somebody with their fingers inside you is kind of a really strong biofeedback. Yep. So when that's taken away from you, you go chasing a feeling to feel anything down there, particularly if you've just given birth recently. Like, you know, you, you're either feeling hypersensitive from physical tearing and trauma or it's numb down there. Like it's not quite the same as it used to be. And so people will bear down to feel like they're doing something. I've had physios nearly on every course where they do an isolated pelvic floor and they're bearing down. It's wild. These are pelvic physios. That's wild. What do you think but, the percentage is? Like 30? I, heard, I, I saw a stat there. I forget. I do not have mm -hmm. that. 35% do Valsalva. What was it? It was high. Uh, I, I think it was something... Um, I think it was a percentage of pelvic physios couldn't do their pelvic floor contraction properly. Um, and, and the reason why is because I think when they check themselves, they've got their fingers inside them and they can squeeze and lift. And then when they take their fingers out, they assume that what they're doing is squeezing and lifting, but it may not be. Uh, because they're always shocked and rocked yeah. that, they're bearing down because they're not getting to feel it themselves. Right. And they go, oh, my God, I am bearing down. I've never checked it this way before. And it's like, I'm an external pelvic floor physio mm -hmm. and you're an internal one. You're trained to do internal. They don't train you to palpate externally, at least not in the traditional training. Hopefully that's changed now. Right. But, yeah, external palpation. Where yeah, do you important. externally palpate? I'm curious. I don't, I've, I've never, I mean, I've had many pelvic, you know, physio sessions, you know, but I don't know mm -hmm. if it was ever explained to me, like now I'm externally palpating for your pelvic floor. Like, so how do you do yeah, that? Yeah. So external palpation, like you have the labia, you have the labia majora, right? Uh -huh. um, so then between the pubic bone, which is an upside down V shape, Mm -hmm. just inside of that in in that crease of the labia majora so i don't go midline that way um i palpate on the sides near where 
basically where the pelvic flora touches and into the flat of the perineum. Now, everybody's perineum is a bit different. Smaller people have less space for me to be there. And there are some people with a very wide perineum and I've got lots of space to, to be there. Um, I also do a very flat-handed, lots of consent, whole perineal palpation where I use my flat hand over their perineum there's no curling of the fingers or anything so it's very flat um and then i leave my hand there and depending on what i'm looking for it'll be the hand at the front half mm-hmm. on t- on like on the perineum more than the back half or the back half hand and then the front half and i'm feeling for where the pressure is coming from um but just acknowledging even putting my hands on people, particularly in the perineum, will cause some degree of activation because somebody has just put their hands on you. Um, yeah. Your nervous system changes. But oh, there's something I need to, to talk see. about now that we, okay, before mm. <laughs> we got to talk about this. I have noticed, and this is something I've talked to Sinead about, who you know I'm close with, Dr. Sinead before. You know, recently I remember having a class and it was about a prenatal class. I'd say 17 of the 20 people in the class raised their hand. And I said, you know, how many of you, they'd all seen a pelvic physio in their pregnancy. And I said, how many of you were told that you had a hypertonic pelvic floor? And 17 of the 20 raised their hands and they had all been told, oh, your pelvic floor is hypertonic. So then they come to class afraid to do any type of pelvic floor training because they don't want to be too tight for birth. And, and I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, this is an overprotection response. Exactly what you just mentioned. It's not necessarily chronically shortened tissue that they're dealing with. And yet we've labeled it right. And that's not empowering. We sort of given them this, this diagnosis and now they're, it, it, it impacts their feeling of, of, empowerment as they approach their their birth right that is definitely one possibility um you know it has to fit with the story so hopefully the pelvic pts are putting it together with other pieces of the story like i have pain on penetration or pain on deep thrusting they have uh difficulty urinating or initiating urination they have um you know um yeah, they have difficulty putting a tampon in. They have difficulty with pelvic exams. Like it's very, very painful. The doctor can't get the speculum in. Like all of those things as well, I would be expecting to hear if somebody was, if I was to even hint that they may have an overactive pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they don't, it's like maybe they just have higher tone than others. You know how there are some... There are some people walking around, both male and female, and it looks like they're just flexing all the time. Like they just look shredded and their abs are just amazing. And you, like I assess these people and no, they're not chronically contracted. They just look like that. And then there are other people where, yeah, like let that go and then it all comes out. And yeah, they've been holding on to it to look like these other people who aren't even holding on. Like when they sleep, which is when you're definitely the most relaxed, they still look like that. It's like, ah, Um, it's just, it is how it is with people. And, you know, for me, there has to be many things that line up before I go with 
um, you know, you have a hypertonic pelvic right. floor. Because otherwise, sometimes people are just have a strong pelvic floor and you're really good at that. And I know that I'm a stranger and I'm putting my fingers inside of you. And yeah, maybe that is a reaction to that because who signs up for that and goes, oh, I'm so looking forward to my first pelvic PT session. Never had this before. I know they're going to put fingers inside of me. Like mm-hmm, I'm going to yep. guess that very few people are going excited for that um, yeah. unless they really need the information and that's what they're excited about. But yeah, yeah most of the time the pelvic PTs tell me that you know, we don't have to do an internal examination on the first thing. And like, they're changing the narrative around that, which is great. Yeah. Because most people dread it. Because it's, it is going back to full circle here before we wrap up the scar. Like, are you, when you tell someone what, you know, are you saying, you know what, you have a bit of tension that I'm feeling, try to breathe through that, giving them some brain mapping work, telling them to soften, breathe, let go. And then they can feel, oh, actually, I know how to release it. I'm not chronically tight versus going and doing a quick, you know, doing an assessment. Oh, you have to really work on releasing. You're a little too tight for birth. Like that's a very different word. It's not, mm. that's not scar. That's not strong, capable, adaptable, resilient. That's more like, we're going to put you in this category. Now, when they go back to see me, I've got to deal with people who are afraid to move. And this happens mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. So. And, you know, these people that are afraid to move, i tell you what's really good. For, for people who really do have overactive pelvic floors, deep lunges, deep squats, like, you know, full range of motion and distraction. When you focus people on their pelvic floor and they have an overactive pelvic floor, mm-hmm. they tend to get more active. Like if I said to if I started talking about posture to you, every yeah. time I do it on a course, people change their posture <laughs> because I've just brought it to their attention. Right, you're wearing um, you're wearing a shirt. If now that I've mentioned it, you now feel your shirt more mm-hmm. than before. I mentioned that you're wearing a shirt, like because our brain will just pay attention to things and turn the volume up on that message a little bit until we turn it back down or until it turns it back down again. Yeah, that's a so great. you know. So yeah, telling someone they have a hypertonic pelvic floor in pregnancy can make them have more of a hypertonic pelvic floor because they yeah it, yeah it's hard because once once we've assessed i don't think it's our information to keep right so we've got a i don't again it's a patriarchal matriarchal system where ah oh, you know i didn't want to tell you about that because i didn't want it to harm you or i didn't want you to have this reaction to it it's like you're deciding for somebody about that Mm-hmm. So I still think that we need to describe our assessment findings. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But it's like, oh, okay. And I can see that there's some tenderness here. We're going to find out why. Because exactly. sometimes an overactive pelvic floor can be in reaction to pain. Or I don't know, you are really heavily pregnant and, you know, you're struggling physically because this baby's a big one. Like, do you know what I mean? And so sometimes muscles just get tired. Like nobody goes, oh, your calves and the swelling that you have in your calves, oh, my God, so bad. Whereas people just go, oh, yeah, you're pregnant. Like, you know, duh, you just put on 30 pounds. Of course you feel tired in your calves because you're on your feet all day because that's your job. Like people don't go about that for the pelvic floor, though, for some reason. I love that you just said that. And I feel like that might need to be like the snippet for this podcast episode (laughs) because it's so true. We tend to sort of think of it. It's its own like mysterious sort of 
category. It's a little box. It's like Pandora's box. And we don't talk about it in the same context as other muscles, but it is just a set of other. Granted, it's governed by the autonomic nervous system. There is a bit more going on. Well, it, it has a coordination with the autonomic nervous system. But yes, it is still skeletal muscle under voluntary control. Mm-hmm. So we can affect it. Um, but you know what? If I was to say what core stability is mediated by, it's not fascia. Your transversus and your pelvic floor are not linked by fascia, and that's the reason why they work together. The common denominator in the classic core stability muscles, the transversus, the diaphragm, the pelvic floor, multifidus, if you want, Mm -hmm. is pressure. Pressure is the mediator. As -hmm. soon as you increase the pressure, your transversus and your pelvic floor and your diaphragm will work to control that. Mm-hmm. as well as your other respiratory muscles. And there's lots of muscles that go into it. Anytime you go to move anything, you will, you'll see an increase in pressure in general because any muscle acting on the trunk, any muscle that connects to basically your spine, your rib cage, or your pelvis, any muscle that connects there and then you're working especially against gravity, um, so just moving your leg forward, lifting up your knee is going to increase the muscular activity in your system and that's going to increase pressure. Mm-hmm. Pressure is necessary for stability. And that's why, you know, it's important to recognize even things like doming and coning, that's just pressure management mm-hmm. that is strong, capable, adaptable and resilient. We may not like the cosmetic appearance of that, But unless you're reaching the limits of tissue tension where it may develop a hernia, yeah, no. Oh, it's the car seat, it's the crib, it's the between the washing machine. I don't know what kind of washing machine you have, Anthony, but. (laughs) Well, just the fact that they're side by side, right? Sometimes things go down the back, but I've got front loaders. You still got to get around them somehow. I feel you. I feel you. But um, even putting, even like, you know, people get stressed out because they can't put, the car seat with a baby in it, mm-hmm. in the car without bending and twisting their back. And it's like, it's such a powerful message that's been put out there. And I hold physios accountable mm-hmm. um, because let's face it, they probably taught most of the Pilates instructors mm-hmm. um, just because you're a Pilates instructor. Like, oh, we've got to do better. We've got, we've got to use our brains more yeah. to really think about how does this actually work and mm-hmm. what are we actually doing? And that's why I like teaching principles instead of protocols, because protocols means I saw an overactive pelvic floor. Therefore, you've got to get breathing relaxation exercises and you've got to be careful when you do any exercise. And say, hold on a second. Just because you found something doesn't mean that's the advice you give. What about the whole of their picture? What about all the nuance? Maybe their pelvic floor is overactive because they've got Um, I don't know, sexual trauma, sexual abuse trauma, and actually doing hard exercise to the point of pelvic floor fatigue is the thing that's going to help them the most. Mm. And why did I use that example? Because I have somebody like that. Right. When they fatigue their pelvic floor, they feel much better. Get them doing harder things. Yeah. You know? I love, this is important that you're sort of flipping it on its head. So it's good. It's good. I've got lots to think about. I'm going to get, uh, we might have to do a sequel on the whole coning thing. Oh, I'm happy to. <laughs> and um, tell us, I know we're going to have everything in the show notes, 
um, any resources you want to provide, links to any of your webinars, programs. They're so excellent. You do such a good job of making it easy to find the information. I know because I've just purchased one of them. Um, tell everybody where they can find you, Anthony. So yeah, everything is recorded and laid out. Uh, so everything to help with the recording is all laid out. And um, yeah, otherwise, anthonylow.com and follow me at, at Physio Detective on Instagram is the easiest. Fantastic. And I hope to see you this March in Toronto. We're going to work on that. Yeah, get me to get me there to Toronto and um, I'd love to see you there. Be awesome. Thank you again. Thanks for having me on, Nikki. Bye. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.